patience, patience with the purification process itself. Every moment is a transition time. (laughs) Each birth, each moment is taking birth and passing away. And also on a larger scale, we're going to, we're in an in a transition time here at IMS. And so I know you're already feeling it. Some people have already disappeared. About 30 people will leave by Wednesday, but also 30 people will come into the retreat on Wednesday. So the people that are leaving need to remember that the practice isn't ending and to keep going with the practice. Uh, stay as mindful as you can. The practice doesn't stop. The practice will be shifting from a world of an emphasis on not doing to an emphasis on being mindful of doing. And then with the 70-ish people staying, uh, we're in this process of saying goodbye to the people that are leaving and saying hello to the people that are coming. And it's a practice. The practice doesn't stop. It's just uh, a transition time. There was a time in my practice where I was on a long retreat, on a long retreat, uh, and I was just walking down one of the annex hallways, and I noticed somebody's suitcases outside their door. And I didn't know this wasn't a transition time, uh, but just that moment of seeing the suitcases and knowing that this person was going to disappear, I went back to my room and I actually sobbed for hours. You know, there was something that it just touched in me, something so profound, and I couldn't put it into words other than the truth is is that we never know what's going to happen. And I really knew that I might never see that person again. And even though I didn't know that person, there was that sense that they had become family for me in the retreat. There's a kind of cracking open of the heart that can happen around a transition time, realizing a birth and death of a moment or the disappearance of a person on a retreat. This is from Michael Lunig. It's called The Prayer Tree. When the heart is cut or cracked or broken, do not clutch it. Let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. Let it go, let it out, let it all unravel. Let it be free and it can be a path on which to travel. When the heart cracks open, do we relate to it as a path on which to travel? like when the heart cracks open, it's really when the light can get in, but we often meet it with such resistance. So this time is an evocative time. 
uh, for knowing how to relate to the passing of time, of change. So I'd encourage you to see this time as a path on which to travel rather than a time to resist, you know, the coming and going of people here. And, and see that whatever emotions come up or whatever insights come up, uh, that a lot of the reference point will be around the truth that we never know what's going to happen. And we can learn so much from this time on the retreat if we, if we stay open to the teachings that we get. A friend of mine who uh, died this spring on the Big Island, um, I went to see her a week before she died. I didn't know it was the week before she died, uh, but it was, I knew it was close. But I didn't really think about so much that it was the last meeting when I came there or arrived. I knew I just wanted to see her. Uh, I stayed with her for some time, and then it was time to go. And I remember uh, I didn't really get, you know, she got it, but I didn't quite get yet that it was the last time I was going to see her. And I got to the doorway of her room, and I turned around, and I had already said goodbye, and I looked at her, you know, and she gave me this look, and I knew, you know, it was just, oh yeah. And it was this, just this beautiful look of, um, you know, I love you, goodbye. Uh, that Neruda poem where he said that our human duty is to love and to say goodbye. You know, this, this is what's really happening each moment, each moment with a sound. It's final. It's gone. Uh, I know a teacher in Burma, a Sayadaw named Ukundala, who teaches people just to pay attention to endings. Right from the beginning of practice, it's not like you're supposed to notice the appearing or disappearing, or the appearing. He just has you focus on endings. So whether one's with walking or eating or the breath, um, whatever it is, a sound, that the attention just notices it going. It's a powerful practice. The other day I was, um, I went to a place in the forest that I like to go to that has a little stream and I know this place well. And sometimes the familiar places that we uh, get used to going to, I think, in our life are often the places we forget the most that it might be the last time. And I think when we're able to really relate to that experience that way, it's not that you can force it, but one can remind oneself, oh yeah, (laughs) this might be the last time I'm here. Uh, We often value the experience. There's a kind of bittersweetness to it, but it's very true, very real. It wakes us up. So in fact... This group of people right now here, it's one of the few times left that we're all together again. And can we sit here and just be, it's like being with all the trees and the forest and the stream. It's like we're just hanging out together. And it can be so um, poignant and wonderful. It's hard to go to sleep when one's aware of this aspect of life. 
it wakes us up. This takes a lot of patience. It's a balance, really, of being fully present or fully connected with the moment, with the truth of life, but also non-attached. So this, this next few days and the next week, take a look at what the thoughts are in the mind when the people leave. Do you want to go with them? Or do we want to stay if we're leaving? Or are we ambivalent? Or are we all of it? Probably, if you're honest, all of these thoughts will come up. There was a retreat in 1984, the first time Upandita came here. Uh, The tape series that some of you are listening to is from that retreat. Uh, There were 20 of us sitting that retreat. I was in the lower walking room in the room across from the bathroom downstairs uh, for three months. So if you can imagine being here at IMS for two and a half months with 20 people, and Joseph was on the other side of the lower walking room, and I was, you know, it was pretty um, uncrowded, (laughs) to say the least. Uh, And staying down there, I got a little bit more quiet than usual. I just would come up uh, for meals. Uh, so half, two and a half months into the retreat, 80 people were allowed to come in for the last two weeks. And so um, I noticed that I, I really couldn't handle it. <laughs> it wasn't even, I couldn't even recognize it as a version of murderous rage. It was just <laughs> impossible to deal with the situation. Uh, so I went to the boiler room. There's this uh, whole area of IMS that most of us don't get to see, but it's where the heat is coming from. It's this like heartbeat of the center. In fact, when you get quiet, sometimes you can hear it. Uh, so I like to, um, I used to just go down there all day and stand and look at it. You know? <laughs> I did that for two days. I just kind of hung out at the boiler and just hope for the best. (laughs) And then I think Steve probably noticed that I had totally disappeared. uh, And I came up late one night hoping, hoping some people were missing. uh, (laughs) And I got a little note, and it was from Steve. And it was just a teeny little note, and it said, the barbarians have come. Uh, and that's, it. just, the, the humor and the kind of recognizing that, oh, this is why I'm having a hard time. I was so quiet, I couldn't quite get what was going on, but I was just, uh, I knew the energy was affecting me somehow. Uh, so just see if you can notice, if you're staying on and the people come in, you might note just barbarians. Oh. <laughs> barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> for just a little bit. And it's not, again, it's not necessarily a judgment, a value judgment, as much as <laughs> they're coming from the world that is going very fast. And even if they're trying, they're not going this slow. 
You know, they're going to slam a door. They're going to knock something over. They're going to, they're going to take somebody's place at the dining room. They're going to, you know, <laughs> they're not going to know it's your routine. You know, <laughs> and I'm, an aversion's going to come up. And if you find yourself at the boiler, <laughs> just remember, after a few days or a week, everything will kind of settle down again. Uh, so it takes a lot of patience. And try to see it as a path on which to travel uh, rather than that something's wrong or that, you know, you just wait it out and you don't really open to it as a teaching. This is a great transition time, and a transition time is usually a great teaching. I had one three-month retreat in the annex where I really think that the room that was next to mine was sort of used as a yogi hotel. You know, it was, it was like every couple days somebody would come and then go and come and go. Uh, but I didn't know this at first. I just kept thinking somebody was going to move in and stay. Uh, so I think, you know, when you're sitting in your room, you sort of have this idea that it should be quieter than the hall. It usually isn't. I mean, there's usually something that's happening in the room next to us that <laughs> we sort of think, well, maybe I'd better go back to the hall. Uh, it was fascinating because it was the unpredictability that was so hard for me. You know, somebody would move in and I'd think, oh, are they going to stay? And can I get used to the routine of the sounds? Because I would have so much aversion to that barbarian kind of um, way of being here. You know, the door would slam, they'd unpack. You know, you could hear the alarm clock go off. They'd get, you know, you get used to each other's routines. Uh, and when it's unpredictable is when the aversion comes up or the fear. That retreat taught me more about being with not knowing what's going to happen than retreats when I had roommates on either side that were there the whole time. Part of, ex- part of patience is really uh, the spirit of beginning again, patience. And so if you have a version come up around this transition time, it's, it's just you can't control it. There's nothing you have to do about it, but experience it and understand it and start again. One other aspect of being here through this transition time is also to know that the mindfulness that is happening here is catchy. It will be much easier for the people coming in here to settle in because of the steadiness and the continuity of your practice. And to know it's a gift that you offer the people coming in. And they're going to really appreciate it. I mean, so many people say that coming in to this space, uh, it's so much easier to settle in than when you're starting in with a whole group at the beginning. As you know, Stephen and I have been doing, uh, teaching some young adult retreats here for the past 10 years. In the early days, we used to sit the late night sitting. It's a half an hour sitting. Uh, but it would always end. You know, we'd make sure people moved in silence to their rooms. 
Um, but this year I decided that I would stay in the hall. And we had an agreement that people would either sit in the hall or go to their rooms and it would be silent. Uh, I was amazed at how many people started sitting with me. It was just like the mindfulness is catchy. Uh, I was also amazed that, you know, I started experimenting and I noticed I would get up and leave and I would see if any of the young adults would stay if I left, but they wouldn't. It was like if I stayed, they would stay. If I left, I would, I, uh, they would leave. The last night of the young adult retreat, um, we have a campfire, but we've also started an all-night sitting, mainly because there's one young adult that has done an all-night sitting by himself the last few years. He's amazing. And so at midnight, we did, I did an hour sitting with maybe 20 young adults did this sitting from midnight to one. So then I decided, well, keep sitting and see what happens. And I sat till two and 11 young adults stayed. So then I just, you know, that, that retreat is tiring and <laughs> I didn't think I could hold out any longer. And so I got up and left and everyone left. It's just, it's, it's just like there's something about that that was so inspiring for me uh, to keep going with it because they were so excited that they could sit through that much pain and that, that it was possible. So the 11 of us, went, uh, 12 of us went into the kitchen that night and had popcorn after that, uh, and I went to bed. <laughs> uh, mindfulness, the practice, it's catchy. If you keep the beat of the steadiness of the retreat um, at times, you'll find that other people will be very affected and they'll remember to be mindful. Uh, to, be, to do this practice alone is so difficult. Now, even if we get really <laughs> um, irritated with each other at times on the retreat, which happens, uh, if you were here by yourself, it would be so hard. We affect each other. When we're kind of missing the beat, we finally pick up the beat often from being around somebody who is mindful. This is a poem by Rumi. There is some kiss we want with our whole lives, the touch of spirit on the body. Seawater begs the pearl to break its shell, and the lily, how passionately it needs some wild darling. At night, I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me. Close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door, only the window. Close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door, only the window.
there's a, a longing or yearning that we have for this deep experience in life. And that's what we're here for. Uh, but it takes so much patience, tolerance, acceptance. Uh, we, it's a peak experience in meditation when that happens. And I think of the uh, patience as like a path to walk on. It's a way of life. Uh, because uh, there are peak experiences, but then there's sleepiness, there's restlessness, there's doubt, aversion, attachment. Um, it's not all the moonlight coming through the window. So first we have to understand that mostly the practice is about patience. It's that um, drop by drop, step by step, seeping in of the wisdom into our heart that's happening. Mindfulness practice is a path of purification. So if mindfulness happens even in one moment, this this purity is non-judgmental attention. So if there's this purity of awareness happening, even in one moment, there's no aversion, attachment, or delusion happening. Uh, Stephen talked about how mindfulness and equanimity, um, when they're in balance, the attention can be like smooth water. Uh, And this is when the attention is transparent. And the experience will be this smooth water or transparency, it feels like there's no resistance whatsoever to what's happening in our experience. No resistance. That's very, very pure. So whether that there's some continuity to that, or whether it's one, moment, one mind moment, that purity is purifying. The river of life is flowing and so when the awareness is this pure, we're, we're at home in the flow of life, in this river of change, of transition, birth, death, pain, pleasure, neutrality. There's this change of life. And so when the, the attention is that pure, we often judge the practice there as good practice. So we have this interpretation that purity is good. And then purification, that smooth water, that no resistance, it's like washing a dirty cloth in water. When you wash a cloth in water, what happens? The dirt comes out. It's purifying. And so what happens is that that purity makes it possible for us to see a new layer of aversion or attachment more clearly. When the dirt starts coming out, we tend to judge that as bad practice. And we don't see the relationship between purity and purification, that they're both important. You know, if we're just getting (laughs) purity, we're not growing, we're not deepening. Uh, The bad joke about all this is that when the, the flowing is happening and the purity is happening, It's usually when the energy starts to go down that this new layer is coming up. And so it's at the place in practice where we're sort of the most vulnerable 
you know, that we're getting weaker, the mindfulness and equanimity are disappearing, uh, that the, the new layer that we're going to resist, most likely, <laughs> uh, is coming up. Uh, and so we can feel ourselves losing it. And we resist this aversion and attachment. We don't want it. We want that purity so much because we have this idea that that's good practice. Uh, but actually that new layer are appearing and even the resistance to it, the conditioned resistance to it, when we see it, it's like washing the cloth in water. It's part of the practice. Unfortunately, it takes time to understand that this is all part of the purification process. Often, when the new layer is emerging or we're getting clobbered by the new layer, we'll have this idea that, you know, I didn't come to this retreat for this. You know, <laughs> you know whatever it is, it's like, you know, I didn't sign up for this one. <laughs> this isn't how I'm going to get liberated. It, whatever it is, it's some sound, it's some body sensation, it's some thought or memory. You know, and it's often like, it's still getting me after all these years. And we just completely lose it. We just don't have any idea that it's just that thing <laughs> that's going to help us um, open to this deeper layer of aversion. It's not about whatever it is that's happening that's bringing up the aversion or attachment. What's important is that we're seeing this deeper layer of aversion and attachment. In fact, as I've practiced, those deeper layers of aversion and attachment are really painful. You know, I didn't sign up for that either. <laughs> you know, I didn't want it to be that painful as it went along. I'm much more able in many ways, to be mindful and equanimous with it on some levels, but the layer of the depth of the suffering feels more intense. As this new layer emerges and we're resisting, I see it as like holding a hot potato. You know, and we're judging the practice is no good, and we think something's wrong, and we're waiting for the equanimity and mindfulness to come back. Uh, and it's like, at some point, unexpectedly, mindfulness will come back. And take a look at this, because it's not something you can really control. It might be that uh, there's a way in which we're fighting and fighting and fighting, but suddenly or unexpectedly, it shifts. Our attitude will shift again. Uh, and then we have the sense of, of, of at least remem remembering that we're here to learn. Now, often we forget we're here to learn. <laughs> we want to have gotten it. You know, we want to kind of be finished with the process of purification. Try to remember that that's what we're doing here is we're learning spiritually, we're growing spiritually, as well as the times when it's pure. Patience occurs when we understand this purification process. You know, patience occurs in allowing accepting when we have the sense that purity, purification, or purity, resistance, <laughs> purification.
purification are going to happen over and over and over. And that's how we learn. Often when purification is happening, and it's difficult, or sometimes very difficult, we often count the days till the end. (laughs) How many more days were there? You know, or we can't wait to go home. And I know in my most difficult places, I'm always a bit sorry that I've ever told anybody about mindfulness. <laughs> you know, there's that regret that somebody's going to have to go through what I'm going through in those moments. <laughs> and it's like, really, we can't stand to look in the mirror one more mind moment. You know, we're looking in the mirror all day, and it's just like we can't stand it any longer. And it will almost seem impossible, the practice. And this is where we need a lot of patience and determination. And then when the purity is happening and the practice is more effortless or just (laughs) requires a teeny bit of effort, this is when we plan our next retreats. (laughs) And we start having conversations with all those people that we were sorry we told about mindfulness, now we're trying to talk them into coming to a retreat. You know, it's just amazing to to see that difference in the thinking pattern and start to recognize it. When you're counting the days or when when, um, you're planning the next retreat is a real indication of whether purity or purification is happening. When the purity is happening, the practice almost seems possible. Patience is also gentleness. I remember in the 1984 retreat, um, when Upandita was talking so much about effort, um, at a certain point I started saying, the translator made another mistake. What he meant to say was gentleness. And so every time I heard the word effort, I'd go, oh, the translator (laughs) made another mistake. He meant to say gentleness. And I got through that whole retreat like that. Just (laughs) (laughs) another mistake, gentleness. Uh, And it really helped me, you know. (laughs) It's like, oh, you know, this is about right effort is gentleness. Uh, We can't force this process of being patient with purity, purification, purity, purification. It's a natural process of gaining understanding of that's what it is. And as you start to understand what it is, you will be gentle. It doesn't mean that we're not determined. You know, determination is keeping ourselves as mindful as we can this non-judgmental attention. One of the ways that I've seen gentleness or tolerance happen with the combination of determination is around the times when we're lost. And so if we're lost in obsessive thinking or psychological thinking patterns or planning 
or when we're lost in the knots, whether there's the surface knots in the body or the deeper karmic knots in the body, um, the idea of keeping going is keeping going without getting out the whip. And so that, that's the gentleness, that's what I mean by gentleness, is that we don't make an interpretation about ourselves and get lost in a lot of self-hatred and doubt when the purification is happening. You know, there's a real difference between being able to keep the practice going lightly and getting out the whip, which is just going to lead one to more and more self-hatred and doubt. Uh, so this, this, there's a very delicate balance between letting go of control and not giving up. And that balance will just keep getting more and more delicate. Uh, and so right effort is really, you know, you'll get to know what that means for you. But it is that balance of determination, not giving up, and gentleness, which is really, the gentleness is really just patience. It's patience with however it's going for us at that time. When the practice is effortless, it's very easy to see that the presence of attachment, which is wanting expectation or anticipation, or the presence of aversion, which is when we're not wanting sleepiness, restlessness, aversion, you know, uh, or doubt, that the aversion and attachment they don't help us to get out of our suffering. It's only the presence of non-judgmental attention that gets us out of our suffering. It's not getting out the whip that gets us out of our suffering. Ultimately, unconditional patience or unconditional peace is when letting go happens by itself. And it's really when we just let experience be. We really don't have to let anything go. You know, that, inc- that sort of implies a doing. But really when we're letting things be, uh, experience just comes and goes by itself. So whether it's uh, the factors of enlightenment or hindrances or the sound of a bird or knots in the body, they're all just coming and going by themselves. Uh, and the more we understand that, the more gentle we can be and the more peaceful we'll be. Patience is acceptance or tolerance. This kind of deep allowing is an unconditional acceptance or patience. A, a great description of this is by um, Anne Morrow Lindbergh. Uh, from her book, Gift from the Sea. She said that the sea does not reward those who are too anxious, too greedy, or too impatient. To dig for treasures shows not only impatience and greed, but a lack of faith. Patience, patience, patience is what the sea teaches. Patience and faith. One should lie empty, open, choiceless as a beach, waiting for a gift from the sea. It's so natural. You know, it makes so much sense if we see the sitting and walking as waiting 
you know, for a gift from the sea. And that, that that's really what the practice is all about. That simple. So we can see that that um, remaining empty and choiceless like a beach has this quality of tolerance, of openness, acceptance, patience. It's not a heavy hand. It's not getting out the whip. And it's not giving up. It's that steady light keeping going. Sometimes at this point in the retreat, (laughs) the opposite of remaining choiceless as a beach is feeling beat up by aversion or beat up by obsessive thinking. Uh, So whether we're lost in surface chatter or the deeper knots, Uh, how do we relate to this? Uh, If there's impatience, we'll think, I just (laughs) want this out of the way, or I just want to be over with this, or I want this right now. We can see that we get so caught in time. There was a time this spring where, um, when I'm teaching here in the spring, the windows are usually open, and there are a lot of lilac trees planted along the edge here. And I'm super allergic to lilacs. So it just so happens that right in the middle of the June retreat or early in the retreat, I'll be sitting here and the window's open, and I can see these flowers uh, out the window there, these big, beautiful lilacs that everybody loves. Uh, And I'm sitting here, you know, and I start dripping and sneezing, and I'll look at the flower, and I'll think, you know, could you just die? <laughs> you know, could you just get it over with and hurry up and, you know, flower already? You know, and it's just so funny because I love flowers so much for me to feel like I'm getting into that mind state. It's just so caught in time. Uh, mindfulness has nothing to do with time. And that's why there's that sense that it's timeless. It's about um, being here as if it's the first and the last time. And the suffering, I I would notice this spring, that suffering of being so locked in time that I would want a flower to die. You know, that's so caught. And when we're that imprisoned, it's like... um, the mind is caught and trapped, imprisoned in this box. And we really think we know what we need. We really think we know what we want. And that knowing what we want or need in that moment when it's this kind of suffering is such a prison. It's so painful because it's really not going to bring us liberation. The more I've practiced over the years, the more I've seen that it's not doing anything with the knots in the body and mind that really allow them to untangle themselves. You know, if you have whatever it is, whatever karmic knot in the body and mind, and we get to know them on a long retreat, it's not meddling with them uh, that really gives the body and mind the trust in oneself to open. 
If your body and mind knows that you're going to start out of aversion and attachment, trying to get rid of something, or do what you want with something, the body and mind won't trust us. It'll close up or seize up. Uh, but if, if our body and mind knows that we're going to let this process happen by itself and that we're not going to meddle with uh, these deep sufferings out of um, aversion or attachment, the system feels safer. And liberation just happens by itself. And it's just all it takes is that sense of patience and putting in your time. You know, just put in your time. <laughs> it's just like uh, going to a beach. Just think of being here as like being at a beach, day after day. And let, let it just happen by itself. Last night, Stephen and I um, drove uh, three young college students who came to the talk uh, back to their college in southern Vermont. It was quite late. And the conversation started to kind of get around uh, all the environmental issues that are happening on the planet and um, some of the situations that are happening in Burma that are so difficult, the difficult uh, government there. And I noticed that, um, you know, there was a lot of aversion, anger, and these young adults coming up around these situations, it wasn't as much aversion as frustration. You know, and I just looked back at that time in my life where I was so angry about so much that was happening on the planet and I didn't know how to work with it. Um, and I could feel all that aversion and frustration coming out. And we had a context to talk about it. And I look back and I was just so happy for them. You know, I suffered so much <laughs> because I had no context for that anger uh, and no help to learn how to understand how to work with it internally and externally. Um, there was so much uh, mudita that came up for me in that, in that evening ride last night, even though it was so late. This is a quotation from a book called Crazy Horse in Stillness. I think most of you know who Crazy Horse was. Uh, uh, He was the Native American who fought uh, General Custer in our country um, in a time when not many Native people were winning the battles. So this is a book about uh, the karma of that interaction between Crazy Horse and Custer from a perspective of the time uh, before there were even buffalo on the planet. So the poet takes a journey in this area of this earth from the time of the wildflowers on the prairie to the evolution of the buffalo to the time of the native people living there. And then... um, the uh, Europeans coming in. It's a very forgiving, a deep book. The whole book is about this. So at the end, the author of the book and this poem is speaking um, kind of how he came to, to karmically 
write the book and um, trying to understand the karma of it all. In my dream, Crazy Horse reaches into his chest to draw forth this contract written on shell, shell from a box turtle I remember. He trusts it to me, questions in his laser eyes. The turtle opens its trap door and peers up at its dreamer. My own hand passes through my breast breastbone with the turtle. I leave this creature there, alive and awake, a child again, having done without thinking, at least this once, the right thing. Do you ever have that sense in practice when you have that sense of being like a child again, having done without thinking, at least this once, the right thing? And I really get that sense sometimes in my own practice, and I think it's very hard to put it into words. But you know that there's something about this, even though it's a long day, (laughs) you know, and it's not easy to do this. You know, it's when it's purity, it's effortless and easy, but a lot of the time it's purification. And yet we have these glimpses at times when we really know uh, from that deep a place which is really timeless, you know, that includes all of time, that it's the right thing. Those are the times that I think that patience really develops more uh, and allows us to um, be humble, sincere, and able to keep going without the whip. I'm going to end with a few uh, Saidao Ulakana stories from Upper Burma. Um, But the first one is about when Saidao Ulakana came here in the spring. Um, He was our guest teacher for a 10-day metta retreat here this spring. And toward the end of the metta retreat, he came in for his afternoon Dharma talk. Uh, And about 40 or 45 minutes into the talk, he and the translator looked at me. I was sitting over there, and Sayada had this little glint in his eye. And he said, uh, do you mind if we chant some of the metta chant? And I thought, no problem, no problemo, you know. <laughs> Yay, go ahead. Uh, and I thought it was going to be about, you know, five or ten minutes. And then he kind of, I think, saw that, and he said to me, through the translator, well, it might go over a little. And I thought, okay, little. It's okay if it goes over a little. Uh, you know, so we all kind of get ready, and he starts chanting. And this is, you know, all females to the north, the northeast, east, <laughs> southeast, south, southwest, <laughs> west, northwest, you know, above and below, all males to the north, <laughs> northeast, east, you know, Southeast, 
And so we're going along, you know, <laughs> with all the directions. And it's uh, going on and on and on. You know, it's all, all beings, all personalities, all creatures, you know, to the north, northeast. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> and after about, you know, 20 or 25 minutes, I thought, I think we're going all the way. <laughs> and when we did all 524 directions, um, and it was such a teaching in a way, uh, because this place, um, you know, this was a hundred people chanting for about 45 minutes after a 45 minute Dharma talk. And one of my intentions in, is inviting Sayadaw's for me is to kind of clean this place out, you know, because there's a lot of purification that happens and it gets kind of schmutzy in here. Uh, but usually, when the sidehouse, <laughs> when the sidehouse come, they kind of do it silently. You know, they really clean it out, but they don't let you know they're doing it. You just can, I can feel it. Uh, but sidehouse had us do it with them, and it was so beautiful, and it took a lot of patience. And in some ways, just that way of teaching, where you go over and over to the north. May all beings be happy and peaceful to the north. May all beings be happy and peaceful to the northeast. All females, all males. It's just, in his practice, he does that twice a day. Since he's been a young monk, he does that twice a day. It's, it's such a beautiful practice, and it takes a lot of patience. If we see that patience is a way of life, and that by doing that, we're developing it, it's no problem. If we feel like we're trying to get somewhere and we're caught in time, it takes too much time. Uh, and what's great is that there was a, a young adult visiting me just that afternoon. And she just had a few hours and she came up and I was going to do an interview with her after the talk. And so I knew she was sitting there um, 45 minutes uh, and that the chanting started. And I asked her, when we finally saw each other, how she did. And she said, and she's just sitting in the back of the hall, and she said, you know, I was sitting there and Saito started chanting, and right away I thought to myself, he's going to go all the way, better get comfortable. So also on that, uh, the trip that I took to Upper Burma, uh, there are a lot of stories from that trip, but when we arrived in, at Sayadaw's monastery, he wasn't there. And it's very um, polite to pay respects to a Sayadaw that has you stay in their monastery. Uh, so we were invited to a monastery where he was teaching so we could pay respect. And this was, I had Steve's mother with, uh, with me, who was 87 years old, and Joseph, and um, our daughter, Chandra. Steve couldn't come, but it was um, an arranged bus ride to where Sayada was. And so I asked the translator, who I noticed wasn't coming, how long a bus ride it was going to be. And he said, um, a good hour. And I thought, oh, okay, you know. Me, caught in my little time thing, I thought, oh good, I can get back and wash my hair in the sunlight and do this and that. And so I thought, okay, we'll all go on this good hour to see Saito. 
it was an 11-hour trip. <laughs> a good hour. Uh, and there were many things that happened on that trip. One of the things that happened was that Steve's mother broke her foot. Uh, <laughs> uh, but another, sort of there were many things that happened on this long, magic bus ride. Uh, but by the time we got back to Mandalay, it had been a 10-hour trip and it was dark. Uh, and I was quite thirsty. Uh, it was a very dusty, you know, it was a bus on roads that we wouldn't even take a horse on. Uh, <laughs> and so I wasn't used to these kind of trips in Burma. And so all I could think about was, you know, the, how thirsty I was. And it was, you know, Lord knows, I didn't know when we were going to be back <laughs> at the monastery. And so we were driving along, and I don't know if you grew up with Orange Crush you know, you have to be a certain age, but it's a certain bottle. It says Orange Crush. It's a, a drink. It's like a soft drink. And we were going along the street, and I looked out the window, and I saw this <laughs> Orange Crush bottle. It was like I was hallucinating. I was so tired. And I said, stop the bus! <laughs> you know, it was like this memory from childhood, Orange Crush. And so the, the bus driver stopped. Um, but what was really funny is that this... Um, it disappeared. It was like it was actually somebody who was pulling this little cart on wheels. And by the time the bus stopped, there was, you know, everyone didn't believe in the bus that I had seen this orange crush bottle. But they knew I had lost it, so they felt bad. And so they tried to find this place to get soft drinks. Uh, but this took a good hour. <laughs> a good hour. And people on the bus were quite irritated with me because it was also taking another hour that we could have been driving. So the atmosphere in the bus was kind of tense, to say the least, and <laughs> my mother-in-law had a broken foot, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so they brought all these bottles onto the, the bus of soft drinks, and so um, they started to get po passed out, and I was helping passing them out to try to <laughs> alleviate people's irritation. And so I got to Joseph, uh, <laughs> And I said, oh, what do you want, Joseph? <laughs> and he said, I'll have a cold anything. <laughs> and so I went through and I felt them all, and all the cold bottles were gone. And so I said, um, you know, he was really, had lost it too. And I said, there's no, there's no more cold <laughs> bottles. And he said, I'll have a warm anything. <laughs> well, maybe this is how they teach us how to be equanimous in Burma, <laughs> that by the time you get to the retreat, you're already enlightened. <laughs> it, was, it was great. Uh, <laughs> so the practice takes patience. <laughs> and if we relate to it as a way of life, the practice almost seems possible. Let's sit for a minute.
So may we be patient through this particular transition time here at IMS and with each moment taking birth and passing away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.